Hello, I'm Emily Billet, founder of Vespod, author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich. And you're listening to The Wallet. Every week, we give you the best tips, guidance, and a good dose of inspiration and motivation to manage your money better. Inclusion and diversity are the words on everyone's lips. But what do they mean in practice? What is quiet quitting? And how can we make more as an employee and as an entrepreneur? On today's episode, we speak to Sonia Barlow, an award-winning entrepreneur, founder of the Like-Minded Females Network, TEDx speaker, LinkedIn Changemaker 2021. She's also a BBC radio presenter and an author. She's an expert on all things entrepreneurship and inclusion and is passionate about encouraging people to build resilience and confidence. Sonia also opens up about how her background impacted the way she manages her money. Say hello to Rewarding Banking. With Chase Bank, you get 1% cash back on your everyday debit card spending for a year, a slick numberless debit card to help keep your details private, and round-the-clock access to the Chase customer support team if you ever need a hand. Download the Chase Banking app to open your free account. You must be over 18 and a UK resident to apply. Cashback exceptions apply. Remember that we are not certified financial advisors. Information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. What do you do in life? And can you tell me a little bit more about like-minded females and, and, and your purpose in life? Absolutely. I love the question, what do you do in life? I feel like my family asks me that all the time and I don't know how to <laughs> respond. <laughs> um, depends on what day of the week is. That's what I say to them. So really simply, I graduated in 2015 and fell into the world of technology, data analytics and absolutely loved it because that was the future. But I felt like an imposter. Um, and when I meant I feel like an imposter, it really was. I didn't have my community. I didn't have confidence. I didn't know who I was. And around 2018, I kind of was going through a lack of like an identity crisis, maybe a quarter life crisis. I'm not really sure. Um, and I just didn't know where to turn to and who to turn to. And one thing I really want people to know is I had no social media during this time. So I was just going to work, working, coming home and playing all the different roles which, which you play in work. So Like-Minded Females really started in 2018 as a brunch club. And I was like, you know what? I have a little bit of disposable income, but I'm not a drinker. I'm not a partier, but I love to brunch. I was like, brunching is super cool. So if I love to brunch, other people must love to brunch too. I was like, you know, avocados are super trendy. Let's come together. Um, turns out no one actually loved to brunch as much as I did. Um, so, but, but, you know, it started as th a brunch club. It was just bringing people together over brunch. And eventually after three failed brunch attempts, people started attending and they, we started having really honest conversations about life, money, negotiation, careers, community, confidence, and everything that I needed, I, I think I needed as a young woman. And I have to say, one thing I know to know is like-minded females itself sounds pretty exclusive for its name, but then I was just thinking it was a female problem. Um, yeah. Little did I know, eventually it was an everyone problem. Then in 2018 and 2019, I lost my job. Um, and we obviously were on the kind of the wallet podcast, right? So that really impacted my finances, my money, the way that I looked at life. You know, you go in on a Friday knowing that you're going to have a salary drop the next week. And then... No. They're saying, actually, we don't want you back on a Monday. And that's when you started thinking about savings and budgeting and what can you actually lean on. So end of 2019, early 2020, 
um, I decided to take my career into my own hands and I thought, what do I have in terms of skills um, and qualities and, and content even? You know, I was like, well, I've got this like-minded females brand that I'm kind of building organically. I decided to create my own LinkedIn profile. I started posting about the great work we were doing, bringing people together through workshops and webinars. And then companies started reaching out and saying, hey, we've seen you do great work around diversity inclusion. We see that you're a spokesperson. You clearly have a confident voice. Would you come in and do a workshop for us? And I'd never priced myself at this point, right? Or I'd never known how to price myself. So I was like, yeah, oh my God, company X has reached out while they want to work with me, not knowing I could get paid for it. And then that question was like, how much is your rate? And I was like, ooh, you know what? I don't know, but how much is your budget? And one company paid me £1,700 and flew me out to Berlin for three nights. And I was like, that is definitely my budget. That is how much I get paid. So you kind of figured it out in a strategic manner. You're like, what do I have in terms of skills? How can I learn what I know? I lean into my mentors and start doing the work. Um, and then in the last two and a half years, and I'll skip forward because I know we can cover so much content, Like-Minded Females has really become a social enterprise. We have two sides to our business. We have a consultancy and advisory side where we support businesses and being more diverse, inclusive, strategic business planning, keynotes, webinars, and leveling up people's confidence and careers. So we've worked with the likes of King, Babel, Steady, Resident Advisor, PwC, just to name a few big brands, which is super exciting. And then the community side, we run career programs to make sure that we ourselves as individuals are building the confidence and capabilities required to level up in the working field. So we do that through mentoring. So we've mentored over a thousand people, the 98% success rate. We do that through various career programs in the year. We've grown to a social organic following over 50K across various different forums. Um, and we only started our social media presence in 2020. So before that or prior to that, I didn't have an Instagram or a LinkedIn or a website. And the ones that I did actually uh got stolen through a robot which is a whole different story that we can kind of tap into so i'm really good at failing as you can tell i've kind of made it one of my superpowers and during that journey i guess i've been really grateful and blessed to say yes to opportunities which got me a best-selling book called unprepared to entrepreneur eventually it got me a bbc radio show so i host the bbc asian networks the everyday hustle which um just recently actually got named as the best radio show in the country, which is amazing, right? 18 months ago, it was an idea. Today, it's um, quite innovative. And outside of that, I do keynotes, public speaking, content creation. And I think anything where I can leverage my skill set, which is my voice, my problem solving skills, um, and my curiosity, really wanting to help people not feel as crap as I did in the workspace. And I guess that's the fundamental goal my purpose is to make sure that everyone can achieve their version of success um and that we're sharing resources tools um and tips in a way that's equitable or at least equal and fair and distributed especially to those that might not have the financial means or may have uh, barriers to access and you're i mean of course you're talking a lot about diversity and diversity and inclusion i think these have become like buzzwords <laughs> over the, the past few years how, I mean, what is the work you do around diversity and, and inclusion and what is the financial impact of, of making this work for women, for companies and, and also, you know, for you as an organization and as, as, as yourself, Sonia? Yeah, I think it's such a great question. So I'm going to start with what's the financial impact for everyone. Um, innovative companies can increase revenues by 70%, diverse companies by 33%. If your team is diverse, that can increase productivity by more than 40%. 
It can increase staff retention by 85%. Because every time you lose a staff member, it's 1.5 times their salary. Yeah. So these are just some of the stats that I can throw out at you. And from a business standpoint, from a cash forecast to a budgeting to a is it profitable and how do we increase profits? It makes financial sense to make sure that your teams are diverse, that your policies are inclusive and that you are ensuring accessibility throughout. Why? Because you want to ensure that once you've defined your customer base, you understand their problems, that the products and services that you're launching to solve their problems and to commit to their needs are innovative, that are um, fairly responded and that actually solve the problem. So that's why from a very kind of macro level, it's, it's required and it's necessary. Now, from a micro level to your question or to your statement, which I love about it being buzzwords, absolutely, absolutely diversity inclusion are buzzwords. And it seems like they're tick box exercises. We did some great research last year through our network. and We found less than 50% of people know what diversity inclusion means in practicality but over 95% believe that they're tick box exercises, especially in hiring and recruitment. Yeah. Job roles around the DNI space, um, so diversity, equity, and inclusion space, have increased by 52% year on year. And the average salaries are about 50K. However, and the big however is, there's never really been any formal training or requirement into these spaces. And yet now you have jobs that are asking for masters and PhDs and you know earned experience versus lived experience. And so that's a different conversation in itself. In terms of my business, we never, and I want to make this really clear, we never started wanting or thinking we were in this space. We started from a place of I faced inequality in the workspace and I wanted to use my strengths and my privilege and my power to do something about it. And fortunately, the people that we interact with or those who are now my working team have been through something similar. Financially, are we a profitable business? Yes. But does it take a lot of time and effort to convince people that they need our services? So strategy planning, discovery action plans, recommendations, coaching services, workshops, trainings, extended EDA partnerships. We do everything from a holistic standpoint and we level up your talent because it's not good enough just doing the work, but not investing in your people. So we have this like really kind of round circle, full circle approach but it's still very difficult to get budget signed off because either companies don't have the budgets and want you to do the work for free. It's the same as if something was leaking in your kitchen in your house, you wouldn't ask a plumber to come fix your pipes for free. And yet you're asking, you know, small businesses and female founded, women of colour founded businesses to do work for free, which itself uh, kind of expands the gap. Second is a lot of businesses will do something and think that they've put the plaster on the problem and not go and do the follow-up steps. And three, and this is actually recently what's happened to us, is businesses are working with companies for vanity reasons. So we've actually been turned down by a couple of opportunities because we don't have enough social following. Yeah. Which to me makes no sense because it, you, know, you can go buy followers, you can go, um, you can have ghost accounts, but you have to be looking at the real impact in the work that's being driven. On that note, the one thing I would say is before I, I you know, I can talk about this forever in terms of passion is, yes, it makes financial sense. Yes, it helps freedom. Yes, it helps um, level up the playing field, which has already started from a really unequal and unequitable space. 
But what I would say as consumers is if we carry on purchasing products from companies who are not inclusive, then why are they ever going to want to change the work they're doing? Yeah. On that, can you maybe relate to your your personal journey, your background, you know, your culture and maybe what is money for you? I know for me, like my, you know, maybe my upbringing, my background maybe made me, <laughs> you know, like found Ves found Vespod basically. So what's, you know, what's, what's your personal story and how do you link that today um, to the work you're doing to help other women? I think it's a really interesting question. So again, I didn't really realize I had a personal story until I entered the world of work and constantly I was told that I have a personal story. Now, what I mean by that is I didn't put these labels on me. I didn't walk into the workspace and I was like, hey, I'm a brown woman and a young brown woman and one from an immigrant background and working class background and I have X, Y, Z. I just walked in saying, I'm a grad and I'm super keen to get the work done because I need to financially go and look after my family. So my story really simply is I come from, you know, a humble background. We come from a what we would call a first gen or zero gen immigrant family, meaning that I was actually born in Pakistan and I came to the UK when I was four. My first experience of money is, you know, I remember my parents not being able to have a sofa in our house because we moved over from Pakistan to the UK. So we had to really start from the bottom up. I remember a McDonald's Happy Meal being a treat for us as kids and having to like run across um, a highway just to get to the McDonald's. Back then it was, you know, a different dime, a different place. I remember really thinking about what I would purchase when I went into Tesco and thinking, right, there's Maryland cookies and there's Tesco cookies. And actually Tesco cookies are a third of the price of Maryland cookies. And so I'm going to buy the Tesco ones because they're cheaper. And as a kid, you have these thoughts that are going through your brain that people don't realize. So my relationship with money is that when I graduated, I chased money. I really did. And around the age of 25, 26, I was top X amount of earners in the UK. So I had money and money was flowing in and I negotiated really well. My first job to my second job, I negotiated a 20K pay rise plus benefits. My second to my third job, a 15K pay rise plus benefits. So I did the work. But the thing is, you know, they say more money, more problems. Yeah, but what they should say is more money and you don't know how to save and you keep spending and you live without your means and then you have more problems. So my first, you know, real relationship with money is though I've been working part time since I was 17, I worked on the basis not to save because I didn't really have the educational knowledge or the financial literacy. I worked so that when I walked into a shop or my family wanted something or I wanted something, I didn't have to think twice about purchasing it. That's my relationship with money. And then I got to, like I said, before I started Like Minded Females and before I started my own business and I realized, right, I really need to think about what am I doing to better my life for the future so that it's not temporary or it's not today money. It's how that money is going to help you to last long term. And what does money mean for you? So now money means for me not buying designer goods and expensive bags and, you know, like dressing um, extravagantly. It means being able to afford that holiday every quarter and um, being able to have a nice treat in a restaurant being able to go into a shop and know that yeah you can purchase it but you don't need to purchase it knowing that the cost of living is rising and I can support my family members in their heating costs or their plumbing costs or their water costs 
And I think when you have that very culture, South Asian immigrant mentality, which is my background, money to you is not about anything, but making sure that that money can ensure that there's a roof over the head of those of who you love and that you don't have to worry about where is our next meal going to come from. Thank you for sharing your, your, your personal story. I've read this article online where you talk about still contributing to your family finances. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, I still contribute to my family finances, but that's that's all of us siblings. And I think so. So I don't I don't know from a cultural standpoint. I'm really honest, right? Because I came to the UK when I was four, and what I mean by that is my upbringing has been very British in its own right yeah. and very Western. So I don't know if it's the same in kind of Eastern values. So I'm not going to speak on that behalf, but I know that within my own family, in my own family unit, I've seen my parents do a lot for their own parents, for their own family members. So it's just something that I've naturally been brought up with. There was never an expectation or like an extra responsibility to help your family. There just was a We have to make sure that we are doing our part to look after our elders and our youngers and making sure that we're able to level up in the in, in, in the world, right? In society. Um, from a very young age, you know, a, a lot of uh, people might think, oh, my when I grow up, my parents are going to be, I don't know, in a retirement home. I never thought that. If anything, I wasn't yeah. really allowed to think that, right? Like, my mom would have been like, what, what, are you, what, are you, what are you talking about? What the hell? And probably like thrown a slipper or something at me. Um, she, I was like, right, you know, when I grow up, when I'm older, okay, I'm going to have my family, but I'm still going to have my family that I was brought up with because in my family, I'm very blessed that there wasn't gendered roles. We didn't grow up being like, you're a boy, you're a girl. We were just brought up to be kind of fearless and honest and confident and communicate well. And I, I guess that's the anomaly. So I wasn't just thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about how I'm going to live my life when I grow up. I'm, I was thinking about how am I going to give back to my parents for everything they've done and what they've sacrificed and how I'm going to make sure that they are able to live in comfort, especially when they retire. So I was approached by Monzo a couple of years ago to do an article around that. And I remember sharing my story and saying, well, you know, absolutely. My mom has a supplementary card and she doesn't have a budget and she can just go do what she wants with it. And I contribute to my finances in my own in my in my kind of um, parents' house every month, be that however much that is required. But we also have a fixed budget, and I guess to some extent, in the nicest way, I give my mom pocket money, which you know it's like flipping the scene because you become your your child's um your your parents' child. I'm sorry, your your you become like the parent to your parent basically. But anyways, there were two sides to that story, and I got so many reactions. The first reaction was wow, it's so refreshing that you've shared this side because as a South Asian family, this is what's common and not yeah. a lot of people speak openly about it. The second side, which really blew my mind was, we're going to report you. We're going to get you investigated. Um, how how can you be doing that? Oh my God, your mom is taking advantage of you. You know, that's fraud. And it was so weird to have people not understand the sentiment. And that to me, right, before my, anything I did with my business or myself or diversity inclusion, that to me, one of those first moments where I thought, hold on, the world clearly works differently to how my, how I, how my family works. And so I also need to learn how other people work. But it wasn't just comments on articles. It was also comments in the workplace where companies would want you to, you know, they'd be like, well, you have to travel for work here. Or, well, if you're, if you're not able to, um, 
if the commute is too long, why don't you just like live out of your house and pay rent? And you're thinking, you don't know anything about my culture. We don't just live out for the sake of it. If my parents aren't comfortable with me traveling a certain distance for work, or if they think I'm getting too tired, I'm going to listen to them first. I'm not just going to give up my household for work or for money or for family uh, or for kind of, you know, uh, other financial means. And uh, I think I think the thing is, is as I grow a little bit older, I'm in this constant conflict between culture and identity and yeah. westernized values and our relationship with money. Um, and I'm, I'm sure, I've, I mean, I've heard your podcast so much, right? So I'm, I know that I'm not the only one who feels like that. And also as an entrepreneur, your relationship with money, because you think, do I actually have those funds? Or are they, is that money that my business owes? Which is, which are, which is two completely different kind of, you know, headspaces to be in. And I'd love to talk about, I'd love to talk about your business finances, but also you talked a lot about negotiating and helping other women and how you negotiated for more money. Can you have a few tips? Because we all have like different mindsets around, around money. How did you do it and how do you do it today for your business? How do you fight for this cash? And we talked about, you know, companies paying late and yeah. stuff. So that's like another issue. But how do you recognize your, your words and really fight for it, even if it's it can be super uncomfortable? Absolutely. I mean, listen, I'm going to be really honest. So when, I'm, I'm going to give you two sides to the story. When I was working in corporate, which many of us are doing right now, I was so um, clouded by the workspace that I thought my value was based on my title and how much my management liked me and how I would go up the ranks. And I felt like a complete imposter. So I felt like I was a fraud, I didn't deserve to be there. And so I wouldn't really have that conversation around money. After two years of working and being in a position where I was doing the day-to-day -day jobs and then I was doing senior, um, I was also doing senior tasks, right? So. I genuinely, as a, as a kind of a junior member, I'd be doing senior tasks. I started being quite resentful, which I think a lot of people do in the workspace. So I was quite resentful and I realized that the cost of living was going up, but my payment wasn't going up. And then I started talking to new hires that would come in and there'd be new hires who'd be like on a more junior sphere than myself or similar. And they'd be earning five, 10, 15 K more than me. And I'm thinking, hold on, that doesn't really make sense because I've got the experience, I've had the exposure, I've been here long enough, I've got client relationships, you're not really doing the work. So long story short, in my first workspace, um, I actually went to my manager and I said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of ready for that level up. She was like, yes, you absolutely are. You're doing a senior position. And we had a really honest conversation. And this was a woman, by the way. And she said, okay, well, you know what? Stay with me for the next three to six months. You'll definitely get that 10% pay rise. And that, and that mind, I was like 10%. Yeah, I was on 30K when I started. I was like, what, three grand extra and me? Absolutely, I'll take it. Um, so that, that kind of, uh, I got promoted and I got 2% pay rise in line with inflation. And I went to her and I was like, hey, this is great. I'm really grateful, but I'd love to make a business case as to why I deserve more. And she kind of blocked me and she was like, look, and I'm going to say this in the, I'm paraphrasing, right? She basically was like, if you ask for more money, it's going to hinder your career progressions in this business. Yeah. And I'm not unique to that conversation. I'm just brave enough to say that out loud, I think. Um, and that really pissed me off. And I'd say a lot of the time when women, especially are going to negotiate and get that next step, it's because someone has pissed off them, them off in the company and they've, they've seen the blocker and they've had enough. So what did I do? And these are the top tips that I'm going to share. I understood exactly what skills I had to offer, what my experience looked like. 
I went to my old job description and posted and, and kind of wrote down an Excel sheet because Excel was, you know, what was working at that time. And it's free, which is really important, like free Excel sheet or Google Doc. For every job requirement, I wrote down um, my experience, my result and how I kind of built those relationships with clients. I wrote down exactly what my skills were and what I enjoy doing and what I wasn't passionate about. So a really good example is I'm not very good at admin or ops, but I'm very good at client com com conversations, stakeholder management, sales to some extent, relationship building, marketing, data analytics, etc. Problem solving. Um, I went on websites like Indeed, Glassdoor, LinkedIn at that point to understand what the industry average was for my current role. And what next roles look like and what the industry average was there. I built up my CV um, to a space where I felt like it was generic. So I didn't have to really spend too much time doing bespoke CVs. But I did bespoke cover letters. And I got in touch with the recruitment firms. Now, some recruitment firms didn't see my value. And I realized it was I didn't need to work with them. So for me, a rule of thumb was that if a recruitment firm asks you for your salary, I would always give honestly, like 8K extra than I earned. So it'd be like, oh, what was my actual salary? It wasn't, it was 30K, but I'd be like, no, my actual salary is um, 36K or 38K. And so I'm looking for 40K. And then they'll negotiate you back down and be like, you know what? You're kind of looking at the 38 mark because of your age or your experience or because you're a woman. And I'm like, yeah, okay, 30, you know, 38. Like, it's not cool, but you kind of had to play the game slightly, but you're still getting, you know, a 8K pay rise. And so I applied for all the job roles possible. Um, I also took into account my commuting costs. So I had one role that would pay me 36K, but it took me half an hour extra to commute and it cost me an extra 15 pounds a day. So financially, it didn't make sense. So I said, absolutely not. I had another job role that wasn't paying me extra, but was giving me more exposure and experience. And I realized I don't need more exposure experience, I actually need more finances. And so I had two final job, um, two final offers. I actually then did a bidding war between both of them. So I got in touch with my company and I said, hey, it's great that you want to hire me, but I've got another offer of this kind. And actually it's closer to home. So can you tell me what you have in terms of budget and what you can negotiate? And the company that I went with actually gave me a 50K uh, starting with benefits, including training. So my kind of total package probably was in the 60s. However, what someone didn't tell me was that when you go past 50K, you get taxed 40%. So that is a great life learning for anyone listening, <laughs> being like, you know what, make it 49K and get taxed 20% and it would have saved you that extra bit. And then my second job role, sorry, my second pay rise was 15K and it was a really similar kind of, kind of you know, um, attitude. So really simply in summary, know your skills, write down what your current job role is and what you've done to go above and beyond. Think about what your passions are and what you could do naturally. Go and understand your industry benchmarks practice your interviews record yourself on the phone um or write your answers on a google doc because all the questions are very much going to be similar ask recommendations and referrals where possible go into that interview and sell yourself to an extent where you can so self-promotion is really important but don't feel like you need to conform to their standards or be any different because you will find that when you get into the workspace you won't be your natural self um, don't be afraid to compete offers against each other. Start from a selling point of if you're on 30k, honestly, I don't advise tell anyone to say they're on 30k. I'd be like, if you're on 30k, at least make your base 34k. So at least you're always getting that 4k increase. Think about the extra financials that are going to be costly if you're going and commuting on your time, your mental efforts, or actually on costs as well. 
and think about how that you know role is going to help you grow so that's what I do in my personal um, and professional life and I encourage everyone to do that um, women are already earning 18% less than their male counterparts and women of colour around 20% or less and it's around uh, November where you have you know the day where women basically stop earning yeah. and if you're neurodivergent or if you're disabled or invisibly disabled you earn less than your other counterparts anyway so it's just about leveling yourself up um in terms of the entrepreneurship side i'm going to keep this really short and sweet because i was starting from point zero in 2020 i actually had very little confidence in myself and that's really important to be transparent about that so i did about six months worth of work for free but I wouldn't necessarily call it free. I'd say I did skill swapping. I got testimonials. I got feedback. Um, I entered spaces that I wouldn't naturally. I networked with a lot of people. And then when companies approach me now for work, I have set rates, but I also ask what people's budgets are. So a really good example is earlier this year, I got asked to do a five-minute keynote. And um, I initially was going to go back to say that my fee as an example, was £500. Turns out the budget for that five-minute keynote was 5K. So I'm glad that I didn't go back and say anything because they came to the budget and I was like, oh, normally my fees are much higher, but I'll take 5K, you know? Um, and I realised my worth in that capacity. And so now when I negotiate with clients, I always negotiate above budget and I always go back for more. I take into account my experience and the feedback and testimonials. I talk about the great work we've done and some success case studies. Um, I am really clear on how much time it's going to take versus project or tasks. I'm very clear that I also have a team to feed. So it's not just the cost of me, but the cost of them too. I also take into account the cost of inflation um, and kind of the, the cost of living that's rising. And I negotiate upwards. And what I've realized now is my hourly rate is let's say I'm just making this up but my hourly rate is now 500 pounds if that isn't met then I'm going to go and focus on efforts to get me that money or more versus saying yes to things that don't really meet that hourly rate unless it's a charity or a not-for-profit or a company that I'm super passionate about so big companies they have budgets and if they don't pay budgets in my pocket, I always ask them to donate to the services and the work they're doing at LMF Network. It's great. <laughs> I have one final question for you. Um, I recorded an episode about quiet quitting um, that has been, you know, making the headlines recently. I mean, what can we do to, I mean, quiet quitting is not good for employers, it's not good for employees, it's not good for, for anyone you know, what can we do to support, to empower and for all of us to feel, you know, more, at our, you know, in a good place at work? It's a really good question. So for those who don't know, quiet quitting is not that you're quitting your workspace. It's that you are not doing anything that goes above and beyond your designated nine to five job description. Now, I would say there's two sides to every kind of coin. There's I, I say there's, you know, Two, true, uh, two, two stories and one actual truth. So there's like three different sides. For me, I see the positive and the negative. So to your first point in terms of employers, yes, absolutely. Employees are losing out on great staff, great talent, extra work. They are possibly um, reducing the amount of work or activities moving out, but they may be increasing efficiencies. And what I mean by that is if individuals don't feel like they 
have the capacity to do side of the desk work or if they're not being compensated or reimbursed for it, then they at least they're doing the day to day. On the second point, when you're looking at it from an employee's perspective, quiet quitting is for me something that doesn't really make sense when you're thinking about women of color. Yeah. Because women of color can't really afford to quietly quit because they have to go above and beyond their day-to-day job role just to get noticed. So from a biases perspective, women of color are penalized three times more than their white counterparts. They are already earning less um, than their white colleagues and they are having to work twice or three times as hard to get into the same opportunities, if not more. Recently, it was shared that less than 17% of FTSE 500 execs are women. And when we say women, we don't even categorize it into their race or ethnicity or heritage no. or culture because the women aren't even there to make the senior decision powers. It is people of color that are actually having to do extra work at work because maybe they're finger pointed and saying, well, you're the person who can help us with our DNI initiatives or you're the face of the brand or you're going to help us with our marketing efforts. But you also are also the one putting your hand up and saying, I can do more because you want to be noticed for the next promotion, for the appraisal. Because you may not fit into the culture. A lot of westernized values, especially in the UK, you have a lot of um, conversations that are done quietly in the pub or over drinks. And women might not be privy to that because they have lives or care or responsibilities. Culturally, if you don't drink, if you're not in those situations or if you can't commute that far, you're not in those conversations. And so in summary, women of colour are always expected to do more in the workspace. Is it important that they do quit quietly? I think it's just important that they quit full stop to some extent and say, you know what, unless you're paying me for the extra time and work and efficiency and effort, I'm not going to be doing that for you. Or always going back to your job description and saying, this is what's required of me. You're asking me to do more work. That means that actually I'm going to have to do less than one task or give less time to one thing. Can you let me know what that is? Always have an email thread, regardless of if it's a positive conversation, you know, always go back and say, based on the conversation we had last week, these are the points that I took away from it. Let's see what we can do going forward. Quiet quitting should be a red flag for employers because they are putting a lot of work and a lot of responsibility on people to do the jobs of those who are actually in paid positions, tech to do the jobs of those who are actually in paid positions, or podcasts like these to share conversations and education of those who are actually in paid positions. And the thing is that if senior leaders and managers and those who are execs aren't in the positions, sorry, who are in positions of power aren't actually making any change or doing any change, then it's not going to ripple down to the rest of the workforce. This is why we are seeing one in four women wanting to start businesses. We are seeing three trillion pounds possibly being generated in the economy when women take hold of their own career. This is why we're seeing the push for four day working weeks or the gaps being noticed or constantly us talking about diversity inclusion, the financial gaps and the financial gains, we're not just banging on the drum and saying, oh, here's another woman talking about the same thing. It's It makes financial sense to empower your people. And empowerment doesn't always mean compensation. There's new research coming out that says people don't want extra money. They want recognition. They want time. They want investment. They want to be able to take the day off. They want sick leave. They want sick pay. They want the holidays where relevant. They want to actually invest in their learning and progression. 70% 
of millennials want to align themselves with businesses that have values and purpose driven models and over 50% are likely to take a pay cut if their businesses do so. So we're moving towards this generation of sustainability and inclusion accessibility. And I'm glad that people are waking up and I'm glad that people are speaking up and I'm glad that we're sharing so many great information, um, good, bad and the ugly over social media because it means we're using all of this mass information for good. But yes, companies need to do better so they can invest in their people, so they can increase in their profits, so they can make sure that financially it makes sense because the same companies, and we've seen this with the likes of Topshop, with the same likes of Misguided, um, with you know so many high street brands, if they're not investing in their people, investing in sustainable policies and making sure that they are being inclusive, they are going to lose their businesses and their brands. And you're seeing the movement from big high street names to small independent businesses, which may cost more, but at least you're helping somebody grow like the work we're doing now. So quiet quitting, it's a massive red flag for companies to do better, to be better, not to do tick boxes. But it's also a great moment for women, especially and women of colour, and those who are from minoritized groups generally, to put their hand up and to say, you know what, we're tired of doing the work that we should be paid for, and we're going to take a step back. And to show that without them, the workers are being done and then going and renegotiating their pay, their compensation or their time to say, you know that we are the ones carrying on this business. We need to be fairly compensated for it. And when we think about the financial gap and we think about the wallet, you know what? It's really about knowing your why, understanding your skills, aligning them with your values and your passion being able to stand up for yourself and taking data into the conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Wallet. Please share this show with your friends and subscribe on your favorite platform. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It only takes a few seconds, but it helps more people find our show. Join us again next Thursday for another episode of The Wallet. I will answer many listeners' questions about money and relationship, family, couples, divorce, with our experts, Lottie Leaf.